Good morning. Uh, we are in our fourth week of our Reset series. This morning I want to start with a reading from uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Each of us is born glory empty, but glory hungry. When the Bible talks about the boast of the wise man or the boast of the rich man. It's not talking about that they're saying, I'm the wisest, I'm the richest. It says, what you boast in is what you glory in. It's what you assume will fill the glory empty place. And so your glory hunger is geared towards wisdom, riches, strength, all of these things. Because when you boast in it, you're saying, I depend on it. When you boast in it, you're saying, this is what makes me, me. When you boast in it, you're basically saying, this is my default setting of what I believe matters. And you see, that, that in essence is what glory is. Glory is the foundation of what is beautiful, what is permanent, what has value, what is weighty enough, what matters enough. When you think about it from the time a child is born, the child uh, cries out for food, cries out to be changed, cries out to be huddled, but cuddled. But in reality, what's the, what's, what is every cry but the, the hunger to know that I matter? If you feed me, I matter. If you clothe me, I matter. If you keep me safe, if you give me attention, I matter. So in a sense, from the, from the very earliest moments that glory hunger reflects that we are glory empty and then we begin to fill that emptiness with something. And here the Bible says, if you, if you fill it with wisdom, it's not enough. If you fill it with riches, it's not enough. If you fill it with, with uh, strength, it, it's not enough. He says the only thing that can fill the glory emptiness within you the only thing that can actually protect and provide for you is when you realize it's knowing the Lord. That the only thing that's permanent, that's beautiful, that's pure, the only thing that has weight enough for your life, the only thing that values enough to even value, have value beyond the grave is the steadfast love of the Lord, the justice of God and the righteousness and God's desire. The whole of the book... <laughs> Every book of the Bible is written so that you could know him, so you can draw near to him. But life is very tough. Each of us faces very challenging situations. It could be that you're facing a family relationship crisis, or like I did this summer, I faced incredible health crises. Lisa and I, over the last few years, have encountered uh, unexpected health crises. You can face financial difficulties, um, it's not, uh, it's not hard to see that 
everything that we buy and everything that we're, you know, depending on financially is, is subject to inflation. It's all going up in price. Um, it's very typical that there are people in your life who rile you up or sometimes you can be in your job and it just doesn't seem to have much purpose or create much adrenaline for you. Marriages, even that start off well, have rocky patches. Um, having friendships, uh, sometimes they can push you towards sin because they're in that sin themselves. Or it's just the idea that life itself is stressful and there's just too much to do. There's too much responsibility and not enough time. So we're basically messed up people living in a messed up world. And so the idea is, okay, God is wanting to change me so that I'm not overcome by the messed upness of the world, but rather I overcome. And, uh, that you become kind of an unstoppable force, an unconquerable person. But in order for that to happen, these default settings of what you say matter, of what you boast in, have to change. So in his book that we've been using a lot, Tim Chester uh, wrote a book called You Can Change, because this is, this is what I've, I have found, this is what I am relying on for you, and that is when you diagnose things well, and you understand what's causing your problems, that knowledge alone, just bringing the issues into the light, can often bring you enough strength to overcome them. But keeping them in the dark means they won't be healed because you won't reveal them. So, so part of change has to be the change of the way I believe about things, what I'm counting on, what I'm resting in. So, I've learned over the years that in order to change, I have to have good diagnostic questions. Like, think about these questions that Tim Chester poses. In what kind of situations do you act in a wrong way or experience negative feelings? Um, recently, uh, my, my daughter and son-in-law went through a pretty significant uh, trial, difficulty, uh, challenges in their work. And as they were telling me about them, I, I had just like a flush of rage. I had a flush of anger. And part of it was because I want to protect my daughter. I want to protect my family. But it also revealed in a way in that situation that, that I have expectations of either being strong or powerful or have control over things I have no right or ability to control. So instead of denying that that situation revealed this kind of anger or this kind of, uh, I would say, like a lofty view of my own power to protect my children, instead of just, you know, denying that or excusing that because it was my family, it, it, it allowed me to say, how is it that I have such a default setting of, the mighty trusting in or boasting in their own strength. You see, that's what the Lord is saying in that Jeremiah passage. He's saying there's a default setting in me, he's revealing there's a default setting me in me that doesn't trust the steadfast love of God for my children, but rather thinks if I'm strong enough, if I get angry enough, I can protect them, which is an utter and complete lie. 
And so you, you begin to realize that, that these situations that are coming into your life can help you unmask where you are boasting, where you have gloried in something that's not the steadfast love of God or your knowledge of God. What, looking at what makes you depressed, what makes you angry, bitter, irritated, frustrated. When are you most prone to temptation? When are you falling into old patterns that are destructive? What sets you off? What winds you up? You see, the more that you delve into these things, do you see a pattern? And some of the best insights that you'll ever have about yourself are those moments after you've had the negative emotions, or you've experienced failure, or you are you know, experiencing disappointment. Don't waste those moments feeling sorry for yourself or even saying, I should be better than this. Rather, don't beat yourself up. Find the patterns. Explore things to the root. Somewhere in your bad reactions, you're trusting in your riches. You're trusting in your strength. You're boasting in your own wisdom or in your own ability to take care of things. That, friends, is pride. That is glory empty, but glory hungry, and it will never be satisfied. And God says, wait, trust in my steadfast love for you. Boast in my wisdom, boast in my strength. I mean, this Jeremiah passage is so powerful. Will God, here he's saying, will I not be just? Will I not be righteous? Because when you trust in me, the Lord says, I delight in that. See, when you trust in your riches, you do not delight the Lord. When you trust in your own strength, you do not delight the Lord. When you trust in your own physical abilities, you do not. But when you trust in his steadfast love, and you say, Lord, you will be righteous. Even, even here's, here's a simple way that we do this. Things are not going the way you want them to go, but you remember the steadfast love of the Lord and you go, wait a minute. I know God is righteous and I know that he has spoken. Number one, he has said that he works all things together for good. So even though this doesn't appear good, and even though this doesn't appear like it's going to have a good outcome, I can trust, I can trust in his steadfast love to take what is bad and to make it good. And because he is righteous and because that is his very nature, he will do this for me. Now, your heavenly father, he sees all these areas of struggles. He hears every cry that you make for help. He is in a way, when you're being truthful and honest, he delights in the truthfulness and the honesty of your inner being, of your inner person. This is what he enters into. He enters into your truthfulness, your honesty. So when you cry for help, he's always concerned for what's going on with you and what you're going through. We often think that no one cares and no one knows but the Lord always cares. You see, Jesus was willing to be utterly forsaken for your sake so that you would never be forsaken. So God knows and God cares. This is what it means to boast in his steadfast love is that even when you feel down, you say, but God knows and God cares. And I think you should practice saying that. God knows and God cares. Now, that doesn't mean 
that you should be dishonest about the struggle. You should be honest about the struggle because that's where you will, that's where you will reveal what has been concealed of patterns of trusting in something other than the Lord. It's legitimate to feel pain, to feel disappointment and heartache. But when we offer that up to the Lord, he says he will enter into it in a powerful way. I mean, don't you love that every psalm that you read where where the psalmist is struggling, they're being incredibly, incredibly honest. And yet they always, at the end, they're able to, to apply a promise of God to the situation. The Father sees our struggles. He doesn't look on them from a distance. He has placed his own spirit within the walls of your life so that whatever you go through, the spirit goes through. And the spirit goes through that with you. Yesterday I was explaining this where Jesus says, I will give you another. It's a powerful word in Greek where he says, another just like me. Whereas if Jesus was here in physical form, he could only be in one place at one time. We would all have to share him. But he has given us the fullness of himself in his spirit. So we do not share him with anyone else. We do not, he's not divided. You have the fullness of Christ indwelling the very walls of your life. Nothing less than the one who is your great high priest who can sympathize with every weakness. Even though, you know, we see how clearly the struggles are in our life, everything we went through, Jesus went through as well. He knew what it was to be hungry. He was assaulted. He was rejected. He was tired. He was lonely, tempted, needy, opposed, and busy. And he faced poverty. He faced injustice, temptation, even betrayal. And on the cross, he faced the ultimate forsakenness. He was rejected by the Father. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He, uh, Galatians 3.13 says, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse himself. Jesus is not gonna leave you now in the temporary struggles of life when he entered into the eternal struggle for your soul and paid the price with his own blood and his own life. Jesus is a real person. He lived in the same kind of messy world that we live in. So then, you see, more and more, as we focus on the cross, as we focus on the steadfast love of the Lord manifest in Jesus. Here, this is one of the things you have to make, like a, there has to be a stake in the ground where you, you make a decision that you're not gonna question his love anymore, that no circumstance can enter in and make you question the love or the goodness or the righteousness or the faithfulness of God. And the, the stake in the ground isn't a stake you're putting in the ground. It's, it's the stake in the ground of the cross of Jesus Christ. That has to be the line of demarcation where you see he was forsaken so that I'm not forsaken. He was, he was a curse so that I can never be under the curse again. He was rejected and the punishment of sin was paid so that I never am punished. There's therefore now no condemnation. There has to come a time, you see, where you quit doubting and questioning, where circumstances can rock 
your, your boast in the steadfast love of God, his righteousness, his truthfulness, his faithfulness. And so when that happens, you see, then you can humble yourself. I, I have found that until a person has settled this issue, that the cross is the stake in the ground for me. I will never question his love for me. I will never question his righteousness. I will never question the goodness of God. Even though my circumstances are not what I want them to be, even though life is not going the way I want it to go, this is what true humility is. Father, you know what's going on. I trust you because of the cross. This allows us to deeply repent of self-centeredness where I interpret every struggle in my life, where I interpret every disappointment as a failure of God to love me or a failure of God's goodness or a failure of God's power. You see, you must get to the place where no longer will pride rule or reign and no longer function as your protector or your provider. Instead, you say, my protector died on a cross. My provider died on a cross and that's enough for me. And then that allows us to begin to say, I'm glory hungry and anything in this world is glory empty, but I will walk humbly with my God. I mean, Micah 6.8, right? It says, what does the Lord require of thee but to walk humbly with your God? What does James say? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. One of, the, one of the reasons that I push so hard on this pride issue is because I've come to really realize pride is not my friend. Pride is not helpful to me. Pride not only limits me, but it limits my vision of God. If in my pride I am religious, it will make me think that God is angry and somehow I have pleased him with my performance and everybody else is worthy of judgment. If I think just God is loving without his justice and his holiness, then I will think that his love is cheap and forgiveness means very little. But when I see how much it cost him to forgive me, when I realize that he willingly paid that price because he loves me, then I can take into my mind the fullness of his holiness and his justice, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, and my eyes can be open. And then you see, no longer will I just be glory empty. I'll know what it is to be glory filled because it won't be my riches, my wisdom, my strength. It'll be his riches in Christ Jesus. It will be his wisdom, the wisdom of God. It will be the strength and the mighty power of the mighty one. It means so much when you make this step and you humble yourself and you say, you, you are my salvation. I mean, humility is receiving grace and then living in that grace. And one of the writers that I love, his name's Jack Miller. He says, grace flows downhill. People used to talk about the higher life of sanctification, but what we really need is the lower life. We grow up into Christ by growing down in lowliness. To be exalted, we must go lower, humbling ourselves and leaving the lifting up to God. You see, this is where pride fights against God. It says, I will lift myself up. Or 
It says, God, you have to lift me up. You, you must lift me up because I deserve it. Because I do this, this, and this. And, and instead, the scripture says, only as you go into an embrace of your lowliness can you then be exalted. So there's this huge difficulty of embracing our lowliness. This has been one of the struggles in my life. Is because on the one hand, on the one hand, if you feel you're not good enough, if you feel you're not strong enough, pretty enough, or whatever, you spend a lot of your life presenting an imposter to the world. You know, inside you may feel like a fraud, but to the whole world you try to present that you have it all together, that you're smart enough, pretty enough, you know, worthy enough kind of a thing. And so the idea then of tearing off that whole mask, whether it's religious or secular, it doesn't matter, but tearing off that mask of the imposter and then bowing low is not easy. It, it, it is a difficult choice of the will to, to embrace our vulnerabilities, to embrace our brokenness, or in this case, I like that word, lowliness. Now, for years, probably till I was about 37 years old, I wrestled with depression. Some of it was emotional, some of it was chemical. I had a couple of very serious head injuries when I was uh, a teenager. And it caused some damage um, uh, physically to the part of me that dealt with impulses, and, and I had some definite uh, chemical depression. But I also had a, an issue of, of kind of emotional or spiritual strongholds in my life that enhanced or supercharged that, those feelings of depression. So I had to, up until I was about 37, I was, I was constantly dealing with this this at times, despair, leading at once to, at one point even to, to uh, thinking through and planning my own suicide. Lisa used to s explain it this way. She said, your pain is like a mistress. I can compete, she said, with a mistress, but I can't compete with your pain. So that whole idea of Loneliness was difficult for me because I, I wrestled so deeply with depression. But here's, here's a way that God, in his grace, was using my depression as a kindness. And this is kind of hard to, to grasp because it's counterintuitive, but depression forces a sense of loneliness on you. And one of the ways that I began to look at my depression was not so much as a disorder or as a disease, but rather I started to realize that it was speaking to these, uh, as it was speaking to me as a symptom of much deeper needs that were going ignored and unaddressed. So even though I, I, I did seek medication, and I'm not against having medication, stuff, but the medication wasn't really working for me. And I decided that I would approach this in a completely different way. And I would approach it in, in terms of what are these symptoms saying to me? And I began to see that there were these, the, there were these deep unmet needs. So that I was glory empty. 
and there were deep wants, and there were there were a lot of hurtful inner narratives. And so as I began to explore both those deep needs and wants and how I was going about trying to broker my own needs, and as I was exploring these hurtful inner narratives, and, and you know, I trusted Lisa when she said, this is, this is serious, it, it causes... It causes a wall of intimacy in our marriage. And so I, I, I began to realize that, that, the, that the symptom was depression, but the deeper needs were really in a way, I mean, in a, in a spiritual way, I was trying to trust in my riches, which I didn't have any, trust in my strength, which I always knew I didn't have enough, trust in my wisdom, which I didn't have enough of. And so I began to go much more deeply into, okay, Lord, if, if you're going to be the center, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to be God-centered, then I'm going to have to look to you to meet my needs. Well, one of my favorite authors, I think he's one of the most elegant writers I've ever read. His name is Parker Palmer. And he wrote a book called Let Your Life Speak. And he, he details his journey in and out of depression. It's one of the most profound and moving accounts of life-changing meaning and depression that I've ever read. So he had his incredibly successful career in academia. He said he had a loving family, he had close friends, but midlife, he was in the dark woods of a clinical depression, a total eclipse of light and hope. So he went to, to a counselor and the counselor said, how about looking at depression in a completely new way? He says, you seem to always look upon it as as uh, as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you. And the counselor said, do you think you could see it instead as the hand of a friend pressing you down to the ground on which it is safe to stand? See, at first when Parker writes, he writes about when he heard this in the midst of all his sufferings, like this is impossibly romantic. It's even insulting perhaps. But an inner part of him began to see the metaphor of the ground as an image of wholeness, literally of groundedness. And once he was able to accept that metaphor, that picture, it began to exert a healing force on his depression. So he began to see the metaphor of being pushed down onto the ground upon which it was safe to stand that began to give life to him. Instead of, see, what happens sometimes when you're in depression is your depression can create more depression because you're depressed that you're depressed. And so the cycle got broken by that picture. And he said, I've been living a life at an unhealthy altitude. I was over-intellectualizing. Although I was a spiritual leader, I didn't really have a connection to God. He said, my idea of God was abstract, not based on experience or encounters with God. And this one was really big. This is that glory, empty, glory, hunger, hungry description. I had an inflated ego that caused me to think more of myself than was warranted in order to mask my fear that I was less than I should have been. That's a powerful descriptor of trusting and boasting in your riches and your wisdom in your own mind. He said, I had an inflated ego that caused me to think more of myself than was warranted in order to mask my fear that I was less than I should have been. 
So he had been holding himself up to an impossibly high standard, which he thought everybody else was judging him on. So he was trying to meet that standard, but really what was happening is he was, he was living by pride. He was glory empty, but glory hungry. And so he had to be brought low. And he, he wrote this about humility. Years ago, someone told me that humility was central to the spiritual life. But this person did not tell me that the path to humility goes through humiliation, where we are brought low, rendered powerless, stripped of pretense and even of our defenses, and left feeling fraudulent, empty, and useless. A humiliation that allows us to regrow our lives from the ground up. Even humiliation, this is, these are my words, even humiliations, humiliation is a means of reset. God is so committed to you that he will regrow your life from the ground up. God is the ultimate friend, pressing you to the ground of wholeness and safety. See, this is what it means to boast in the steadfast love of the Lord, that even when you feel humiliated, you let him press you to the ground of safety. Even when you feel like life isn't going the way you want it to go, you let him press you down. You let him reset you to the place where it's safe, where you can be grounded. This is what I, this is what I understand very clearly happened in my 30s, and it changed everything. No longer boasting in riches and strength and wisdom, but boasting in the steadfast love of the Lord, his righteousness, his justice. He's the friend pressing you to the ground of safety where you can grow again. In Jesus' name, amen.